0: Boy, I love that, don't you? I especially like that phrase about the shambles there. You know, that's kind of like the story of the book of Ruth. When this first chapter ends, Naomi's life is in shambles. But when it begins in chapter number two, the major section starts with Ruth. And through Ruth, Naomi receives grace. And I'm grateful to God for the grace of the Lord that operates, even when your life is in shambles. I want to show you the setting, if you will turn with me, to the book of Judges, chapter 2, or the book of Ruth. Chapter 1 said, it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled. In chapter 2 of the book of Judges, if you'll look at verse 7, it says, The people served the Lord all the days of Joshua. And all the days of the elders that outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great works of the Lord that he did for Israel. This was after they came into the land of Canaan. Under Joshua's leadership and the elders, the people remained faithful. Verse number 10, And also all that generation were gathered unto their fathers, and there arose another generation after them which knew not the Lord, nor yet the works which he had done for Israel. The children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served Balaam. They forsook the Lord, God of their fathers, which brought them out of the land of Egypt, followed other the gods of the gods of the people that were round about them and bowed themselves unto them and provoked the Lord to anger. And they forsook the Lord and served Baal and Ashtoreth the anger of the Lord was kindled hot against Israel, according to verse number 14. Then verse 16. Nevertheless, the Lord raised up judges, which delivered them out of the hand of those that spoiled them. And yet they would not hearken unto the judges. For they went a-whoring after other gods and bowed themselves unto them. They turned quickly out of the way, which their fathers walked in obeying the commandments of the Lord. And they did so. Uh, What you see... The days that the judges ruled, there was rebellion, resentment, there was sin. The people had forsaken the Lord. The Lord would raise up a judge. Under his leadership, he would deliver them. When the people cried out for mercy, God would send a judge. Somewhere in the segment of time, our story took place. We do not know whether it was the time... When there was no judge, or during the time that the judge was in his jurisdiction. Whatever the case, this story takes place. Samuel is supposed to have written the book of Ruth. We do not know that for sure, but he has given the authorship of it. I want us to look at as much of this as the Lord will allow us to do this morning. We'll not deal with the entire chapter. I wanted to read it so you could get the setting in your mind. If you'll notice in verses 1 through 5, there is not one time that God is mentioned. Not one time the Lord is mentioned. Not one time is there Lord consciousness. Yet, from verse number 6 to the rest of the chapter, there's some 11 times that he's mentioned a God consciousness. But this is after they have forsaken the land, gone into the country of Moab, the husbands died, The two sons have died. You have a widow. And her two daughter-in-laws are also widows. Then a God consciousness. Four things that we'll see. First, we'll see the family in the land of promise. Number two, we'll see the famine in the land of promise. Number three, we'll see the forsaking of the land of promise. And number four, we'll see the funerals in the land of Moab. All right, let's look at it. This is what I call a representative illustration. By that, it's an example for us. First Corinthians 10 speaks the transpiring, the wilderness, the events of the wilderness has been examples for us. This is a representative illustration for a family, for a man and his wife and his children. First we see the family of the Lord in the land of promise. Let's look back at verse number 1. It came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land and a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah. First see the people of the family. Elimelech means my God is king. You don't even know anything about Elimelech except by his name. But his name is an identification with God. It was given to him at his birth, of course, and his parents had named him after Jehovah God. I'm sure he was brought up according to his name in a strict home. Been of Bethlehem and a, a Bethlehem Judah, he had instructions. I believe that at this time Elimelech was a man of God with a family that he had brought up in the city of David called Bethlehem, or was to be the city of David later. Next, you have Naomi, and Naomi means pleasant. I don't forget to say it. Elimelech, my God is King. Naomi, pleasant. Then you have Malon, which is sick. Chilion, which is pining. Second, you see the place where they lived. They lived in the land of Canaan. Canaan means rest. They lived in the city of Bethlehem, which means house of bread. And they lived in Judah, which means the place of praise. Now notice the implications. God had given them this place. You see, God's family... You see the place where they live, in a place of rest, the house of bread, and the place of praise. But then you see some promises that they must have enjoyed. Now before I deal with the famine, I want you to turn back to the book of Deuteronomy, to two passages of Scripture. Elimelech and his family must have enjoyed these two promises. Chapter number 7 of the book of Deuteronomy, Beginning of verse 6. Thou unholy people unto the Lord thy God. The Lord thy God had chosen thee to be a special people unto himself. above of all people that are upon the face of the earth, the Lord did not set his love upon you nor choose you, because you were more in number than any other people. For you were the fewest of all people. But because the Lord loved you, and because he would keep the oath which he had sworn unto his fathers, hath the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you out of the house of bondage, the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So I know, first of all, that Elimelech lived in the land of promise, the land of Canaan, and was a special person. Not only was he special, but his family was special. Therefore, he could live with the promise that God had given. Look at Deuteronomy 11, and you'll see it's a special place. We cannot deal with all that's here in Deuteronomy chapter 11. But this was a special land. Look down in verse number 10. For the land whether thou goest in to possess it is not as the land of Egypt from which he came out. For thou sowest thy seed and waterest it with thy foot as a garden of herbs. But the land whether thou go to possess it is the land of hills and valleys that drinketh water of the rain of heaven. And a land which the Lord thy God careth for. The eyes of the Lord thy God are always upon it. From the beginning of the year even Unto the end of the year. Now it's a spiritual truth here. Those of us who are saved are God's children. We're his special people. Not special because of who we are. But special because the Lord hath chosen us unto himself. He said that the Lord's eyes are always on the land of Canaan. His ears are always open to the cry of his people. But somehow or the other, Elimelech and his family are going to forget this. How easy it is to forget the promises. How easy when facing difficulties and trials to forget the promises. The family lives in the best place possible. They lived in the land of rest. A God-given inheritance. A God-given place where God said my eyes shall be upon it. In the summer and in the winter. In the spring and in the fall. God said my eyes are run to and fro in the land of Canaan. said I know what's there. I keep my eye on you and I keep my eye on what you're doing and I keep my eye on the place where you live. And if I'm thankful for anything this morning I'm thankful for that the Lord knows where I live and who I am and He's got His eye on me. He's given me rest. And thank God I house of bread and a land of praise to praise him to give him glory because of what he's done second I want you to see the family in the land of promise there's also a spiritual truth how we handle our dry times may determine our qualifications for future service how we handle our trials, our difficulties and our afflictions may determine whether or not we're qualified for future service. What you're fixing to see from this point on is bad. But remember, Ruth, through Ruth, the Lord Jesus Christ came. Through that lineage, there is hope. Naomi's hope will end up being Ruth. Ruth. But I want us to see the first part of the story, Elimelech and his family. Three things. Number one, the fear of economic ruin. Number two, the frustration of emotional conflicts. And I think you can relate to this. And number three, the forbidden countries enticing hills. The Bible says in verse number one, go back to Ruth, it said there was a famine in the land. Now, famine means drought. There was no rain. The fields became parched. There was no grass. The cattle or the sheep or whatever it was that they had became hungry. Life became difficult. Trials became many. Hardship abounded. In a land of promise and in a place of rest, the way it appeared, God's hand was not on it. God had forgotten his place. All of a sudden, this man, who lived in Bethlehem, Judah, house of bread, had no bread. Lost his praise. This meant, since he was Ephrathite, which spoke of the area, the region of Judea, he was a prominent, respectable, honorable farmer. But it posed problems for him. When famine came, he faced economic ruin. He faced the possibility of losing his job and his income and all that he had. And this to a respectable, honorable man who loves his family is a frightening prospect. All of a sudden, fear grips him. a fear that I'm sure Elimelech would come home in the afternoon and say wife what are we going to do if the rains don't come wife what are we going to do if we don't make a crop what are we going to do if we have a failure what are we going to do if we don't have any money what are we going to do if we don't have any income? Why, what are we going to do? That's a fearful thing for a wife. But it's even more fearful for an honorable and respectable man who has been given the responsibility of providing for his family. And I'm sure every day as he walked the hillsides and saw the dryness and looked up and saw the blue sky and yearned for the clouds and that would bring forth the rain. Fear gripped his heart with the possibility of economic ruins. Hard times had now come, difficult times, and his reputation is at stake. What if he fails? What if there are no crops? What if there is no job? What if there's no way of making it? He'll lose his self-respect. He'll lose his reputation in the eyes of those of Bethlehem Judah. What is he to do now? Famine has come in the land of rest. And I'm afraid of impending disaster. I can see Elimelech get his wife. In the late hours after Malon and Chilion have gone to bed. And just pour out his heart and say, What if? What if? What are we going to do if? Got two precious boys in there in the bed. What if we don't have anything to feed them? Why? What are we going to do? I don't know how to handle the prospects that I'm facing. Therefore, living in a land of rest, he became restless. Restless. Filled with uneasy feelings and anxious thoughts. I can see him as he sits on a stump. Pondering, worrying, fretting, uneasy inside of the turmoil that's taking place. And then the imaginations begin to operate. See, fear, whether we realize it or not, has torment. 1 John 4 verse 18 said, Fear hath torment. That means mental anxieties, physical agony, and spiritual distress. Folks, if you ever get afraid, it'll torment you. Fear has torment. Now what fear will do, it motivates the imagination. By that it provides a motive for action. Fear furnishes an incentive and an inducement to action. What happens, the imagination creates and formulates non-existent circumstances and situations as though they do or will exist. I can see Elimelech as his imagination begins to work. And his imagination creates possibilities as though they were realities. Realities. To him he looks and sees the fields with no grain. The barns with no fodder. To him all of a sudden there may be fodder in the barn and grain in the field. But in his mind there's none. Famine is here. And his prospects in his mind are dismal. So he says what is it? What are we going to do? The truth of that is if they ever exist circumstances that have been imagined in the mind as fact though they may be fiction the inward results will be the same as though they were real. Uh, Folks, fear can cause you to imagine things that are not there and produce possibilities that will never be but they're real in you. And if they're real in you, though they may be fiction, you'll have to deal with non-real realities as though they were real. And it'll destroy you. And cause you to leave the land of promise. The place of your rest and the house of bread. Because of non-existent circumstances that appear to be real. Oh, I can see this man... As he begins to suppose, one of the most damnable sins, two of them, is the sin of supposition and presumptuousness. If supposition and presumptuousness occupy the mind, deliberations are impossible. Which just simply means... The ability to carefully think out and see clearly and to understand what one is doing or is to do will be impossible. When fear motivates a person and his imagination creates circumstances and situations that don't exist, he forgets about the former promises. He forgets about the former blessings. He forgets about what God has done for him from behind and he looks ahead and he says... What am I going to do here to develop along avenues and lines that may never come? He faces problems that may never exist. All because of fear. Fear is producing a motive for action and inciting. Stirring him and moving him and bothering his mind and perplexing his heart. Anxieties are setting in. And I can see him walking through the fields. I can see him going among the cattle. And I can see fear driving this man. And I can see him come in trying to hide it from the boys. And then looking at his wife and just shaking the head and saying, What under God's heaven are we going to do? How easy to forget it is the land that God said my eyes should be upon it and my ears should be attuned to it when fear motivates the person. So I'm trying to understand Elimelech. He is a representative illustration for me. I place myself over in his shoes. I try to do that with all scripture. Every who the person is, I try to get over in their shoes and see how I'd be. And I usually learn something from their experience. How would I be if drought time had come, the prospect of losing everything that I had, and not being able to provide for my family, and no job, no money, no income, what would my imagination do to me? What would fear do to me? How would the fear of economic ruin drive me and force me to do some things that I wouldn't have done ordinarily? See, fear causes the imagination to run wild. It just runs away with you. Maybe to do things that you never intended to do. Elimelech and his family is fixing to do some things I believe they swore they'd never do. I believe these four We'll never leave God's promised land. We'll never leave the house of bread. Never will we be caught leaving the land of praise. But the imagination created situations that didn't exist or might never exist on the presupposing that the famine would cause them never to have anything. The decision he's fixing to make, I'm sure, was difficult for him to make. But fear drove him. And that's what happens. But fear causes the imagination to provide the dungeon of despair and the jury for the verdict of doom, the weeping mourners left in destitution, the gallows for the lynching of self and the grave of destruction. Do you know what I've said? I've said that your imagination will start to work and imagine providing a dungeon of despair for you, shutting you up in a cage and you find yourself in bondage and then your imagination begins to think of the verdict of doom. What are we going to do? I'm doomed! Oh, despair and destitution and, and loss. If I stay here, I'll lose everything I've got. And a verdict of doom comes in the man. And I can see Limelech. Nothing, nothing but doom in him. Doom and despair, he looks out across his fields and across the possibilities. And he says, Oh, nothing. But fear creates a dungeon that enslaves you. Fear has its bars that won't let you free. Fear causes the imagination to create a verdict of despair and doom that can never be changed. And imagine picturing your family without you and and how you're going to supply the need. And all the imagination pictures them destitute. And there's a lesson you need to remember. The very thing that he was afraid of, he tried to prevent and left the house of bread. And Left the land of praise. And it happened in reality. Here it's only in the imagination. But it's real to him. Therefore, fear causes peace to take flight on the wings of the wind. And his peace is gone. And Limelight faces economic ruin. And he's afraid. All because of the if. What are we going to do? If. Oh, cursed land of the if. From thee let my soul be free. For in bondage wouldst thou keep all that is precious and dear to me. But O blessed land of God's reality. To thee let my soul flee. For in freedom wouldst thou keep all that is dear and precious to me. I don't want to live in the land of the if. I want to live in the land of God's reality. But I'm trying to understand Limelight. Here he is. First, with the fear of economic ruin. Second, with the frustration of emotional conflicts. Here's a frustrated man. Now, frustration emphasizes making all efforts and all plans useless in vain, thus, keeping a person from doing what he has set out to do. Like I said, I believe that he had decided to serve God. But his emotions have caused internal conflict. He struggles between his mind and his flesh. There's a disagreement in his reasonings. There's a clash between his conviction and his opinions. And if there's a fight between his will and his soul. His emotions are in disorder. They're reacting now because of fear. Fear is operating because of economic ruin. Now emotional conflicts have set in because of frustration. Fear and anger and love joy and grief, all which are emotions, amalgamate. Which means they get together, they mix together, they blend together, they unite together to frustrate concentration, thus hindering the arrival at the right conclusion. I found this to be true. Anytime I'm frustrated, it hinders my clearly seeing what I'm supposed to do. Elimelech is frustrated. One moment he has joy. The next he has grief. One moment he has love and peace. The next minute, fear. Doom. He begins to weigh the circumstances. And they'll never weigh out. He becomes a very frustrated man. What am I to do? Which way am I to go? Wife, What are we to do? I believe by this time he's got melon and chili on in him, will it? Famine's here. Distress is here. Disaster seems to be imminent. What are we going to do now? Oh, what are we going to do now? I believe he'd come in and sit down at the table and wring his hands. I believe he would say, why? I don't know what to do. There's such a grief in my heart. Such a sorrow in my heart. My praise is gone, even though I live in the land of praise. What am I to do? My praise is gone. I know there's something to eat the house of the Lord, but I don't get a thing out of it anymore. I go to the house of God, but I don't get anything anymore. What in the world am I going to do? What am I going to do? I know we live in the land of rest, but boy, I've been restless. When you're restless in the land of rest and you don't get any bread in the house of bread and you don't have any praise in the land of praise, that must be a sign to us. What is the sign saying? Three things. Number one, discontentment can force dislodgement. It can drive or force you from a place or a position. It can cause you to become so discontented until you'll leave the place, until they're going to leave Canaan. nobody there to pump you up. Well, I tell you, I pray on God's heaven Rachel and I both don't get down at the same time. Well, that's not true. Well, we both get discouraged. We're going to make the wrong decision. Naomi's in on this, and so is Malon and Chilion. They all leave him together. But he's just so discouraged, he just can't go on any further. All right, and then third, and of course I'm sure you forgot what the third is by now. I'm talking to you about the famine in the land of promise. Number one, the fear of economic ruin. Number two, the frustration of emotional conflicts. And then the forbidden countries enticing hills. And with this I'm on close. I won't go any further. I don't even know what time it is. It don't make any difference. I'm gonna preach to get through anyhow. Hey. Things I've got too much hold of me to quit. <laughs> See, Elimelech and his family were prime candidates for temptation. Like a lamb to the slaughter and like a mouse to his trap. Boy, if you ever saw anybody set up, they were set up. There was a famine in the land of Canaan, but not in the land of Moab. Limelech could walk out and look many miles over the Jordan. Way over there in the distance was the land of Moab with its green, fertile plains. And all he saw in the land of Canaan was dryness and drought. So here is the forbidden countries. Enticing hills, three things, then we're going to be through, because we'll get down to his decision to forsake the land of Canaan, place of his rest, the house of his bread, and the land of his praise. But these, I believe, as much as in me is led to the decision. Number one, the problem with lust. He had a problem with the lust of the eye and the lust of the flesh. He could look over into the land of Moab like Eve looked at the fruit on the tree and desired it and saw nothing wrong with it. Moab was the land of the enemy. The land of the enemy. But when he looked at it, he saw nothing wrong with it. He lusted after it because of what he had. Imagine walking through those parched fields again. Imagine going down to the barn and seeing all the cattle, or sheep, or whatever he had, and then looking up over at the green fields of Moab. Can you imagine the desires and the yearning? A frustrated, discontented, discouraged man yearning and longing for something better sees something that looks better than what he's already got. And I think the problem with the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh is that the imagination begins to work again. There's a danger of optical illusion. Now by optical illusion, it's a misleading appearance. He just looks over there, and it looks one way. Man, it looks one way, but it's really another. It looks good, but it's bad. And I found this to be true. Sometimes things that look good may not be good for you. A craving sets in for the far country. The forbidden territory. And it's never as desirable as it is when you see it how you want it to be. Isn't that amazing? When he began to imagine the land of Moab, he could create a different picture than what he pictured in the land of Canaan. His imagination imagined the famine in, in Canaan and saw himself destitute and the loss of all things. He looked over in the land of Moab, and his imagination could picture desirable things and food in the fields. Oh, his imagination could picture food for the cattle. His imagination could picture better life and life itself. All of a sudden, he began to look at something that was cursed by God as half a curse. Oh, Moab had its enticement, but I believe it was like a bait of James chapter 1. A person's in danger when the land of Moab looks better than the land of praise. When you believe the people of Moab to have it better than you do. And once in a while, I get feeling sorry for myself because some people got more than I got. You ever done that? Probably some of you haven't, but I have. And once in a while, I think somebody in the world got a little better than I got it. And then God says, what do you think you do? doing? You're letting your imagination run away with you. What you got? I got some priceless things. You know what I got? I got a land of rest. Praise God. I wouldn't, I wouldn't trade rest for anything. Amen. I got a price tag written on rest that says not for sale. Right. <laughs> a man can be a fool with priceless things bread, house of bread church, praise God wouldn't trade the church but he didn't lend them away about it so <laughs> yeah. priceless priceless and God says, son why you put a price tag those material things out there so important to you is that what you really want trouble with Elimelech is the trouble with some of us men we think that the most important thing in the world is material possessions to provide for the family But it's not. It's spiritual. Thank God for providing the physical. And all of us want to provide the physical. But here's a man that got his eyes on the material and the physical and forgot the spiritual. And made the wrong decision. How easy it is. How easy it is when the lust of the flesh begins to take over. And the things of the world and places of the world start looking better than the rest and the house of bread and the praise not only did he have trouble with the problem of lust but second with the blindness of deception now by that he approved of another's lifestyle he approved the lifestyle of Moab that God said was sin especially the people of Moab he came to some false impressions he had some false notions he had some false ideas and he had some misleading appearances and misevaluation of his priorities again all of a sudden He's blinded. And then justifiable excuses. Can't you picture this? Can't you picture him giving himself justifiable reasons for plotting his course of action? Can't you see him saying, yes, I've got it all figured out now. This is a thing for me to do. But the scripture said, there's a way that seemeth right unto a man but the end thereof for the ways of death. All of a sudden he said, this is right. But if I'm learning anything from this, as God's taught me these months, it is that outward appearance can appease inward conflicts. Which simply means that if my circumstances are going to be good or the prospect's good, it can calm my inward fears. But that can be carnal and not spiritual. That can be self. With better circumstances, it might give me carnal security so here carnal contentment is a substitute for spiritual peace and he used circumstances to justify it and he was determined to do it and then last I believe he had the problem with the lust those enticing heels. I believe he had the blindness of deception and then third he had the hardness of his heart Hebrews 3 13 says hardened through the deceitfulness of sin." Elimelech hardened himself. He made his decision. Once he made his decision, he hardened himself in it. In other words, he decided to go. He set his mind, formed his decision with with an unmovable and irrevocable mold. His mind was set just like concrete. It was made up. He became unfeeling and pitiless. Toward the things of God. All of a sudden, the land of rest didn't move him anymore. The bread in the house of the Lord didn't move him anymore. His praise didn't move him anymore. What moved him and motivated was to have better circumstances and have a better life for himself physically and materially. And when that began to motivate him, he set his mind, hardened his heart, hardened his countenance, hardened his mind. The lust had already gotten a hold of him. He made his decision. And once he made it, nobody could change him. He didn't even give God a chance to try He didn't even ask God about the thing. And so what happens to him? He becomes unyielding. He will not yield. He will not submit to the things of the Lord. He will not do anything. To him, he leaves the bad to go the good. He leaves to win and not to lose. But the simple truth is, there's no talking him out of it there's no praying him out of it there's no seeking for divine guidance there's no asking him to do what's right two other things that we'll see in the story later like I said this part of the story is bad but there's grace going to operate that's why grace is going to operate the tragedy though is that when grace does operate Elimelech won't be there. Because there is the forsaking of the land. And then there is the funerals in the land of Moab. Look at this man now with me in Ruth. When our story begins, there's a precious family in the land of Canaan. The man, Elimelech, my god is king. Naomi, pleasantness. Pleasant in spirit. Pleasant in conduct, pleasant in conversation, pleasant to be around. Her husband pleased with her, and her pleasing to everybody else, with two fine sons. And then, you find them with famine in the land, hard times. Problems that they didn't know how to handle, with conflicts they didn't know what to do with. Made a decision to leave, and left. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, today, oh, I can see the high price of sin. You said the wages of sin is death, and we have to pay that consequence sooner or later.